Today we are in Luke chapter 4, and I guess we're going to Luke 4, and we're going to read again together. Uh, this passage is 14 verses, and I hope all y'all can see that. If not, there's nothing I can do. Uh, but <laughs> uh, we're going to uh, we're going to read 14 14 verses of Luke, and uh, we'll read it all together. Uh, starting with verse one. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. It's supposed to be eight. It's supposed to be eight. Typo. That's my fault. Sorry. <laughs> he ate nothing. <laughs> Let's start that again. Let's start that sentence again. That's the message. truth of it, and, and we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to the truth of it. Open our eyes, uh, Lord, help us to see through uh, the, the things that our, our mind would, would think apart from your grace. Lord, help us to see the truth of, of what you are, are, are showing us here in your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can stand on your word. We thank you that the truths here are not just for this moment, but they are eternal. And God, we thank you that we can look and see ourselves in this picture, and, and also we can look and see Christ, and we can see his glory and worship him. So I pray that we would do that today, Lord. Open our hearts, open our minds, so that we would worship you for who you are. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, first, let's look at the context here. Um, okay. Let me, uh, let's look at the context of, of what we're doing here in Luke, okay? This is... Um, this is really important when we study scripture, when we, when we read scripture, it's really important to step back and see who this is coming from, who it's going to, what was the intended purpose of the writing so that we, we, don't, we don't mess things up and, and, and try to, try to put, it, put it into our pigeonholes that we want to fit it into. So Luke is one of the synoptic gospels. 
Okay, so it means there's three Gospels that, that specifically uh, are lined up to tell the story. Right? And that's Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. And then the other one, the other Gospel is, is John, the book of John. And it's a little different. It's not considered one of the Synoptic Gospels, but it's also, but it is considered a Gospel. And it's telling the story too. Right? These are telling, these are firsthand testimonies of what has, what happened. I mean, they're, they're, they're like the, uh, the evidence in the courtroom. Right? They're, they're, a, they're an eyewitness testimony to what has happened. And so um, Luke 1 through 14 here, this is, this is where we are. There's a, there's a reason that the book of Luke has been written. And it's throughout the, it's throughout the, uh, the whole book, and it's for a purpose. So it's this, eye, this eyewitness, this orderly account to, do, to be able to, um, to show the reader the truth of what's happened. So there's this. There's this purpose that um, the writer of John has as well in the book of John. And he makes it clear in, in John, right at the end, John 20, verse 20 through, thir through uh, or 30 through 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's the purpose of John, right? That these things were written so that you may believe, and then that by believing, you may have life in his name. That was the purpose of John. Well, what is Luke's purpose? Luke's purpose is, uh, for writing this book is right at the beginning as well. Uh, and it says, uh, if we go to Luke 1, let's be there. If we go to Luke 1, we see what the purpose is for Luke. It says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things, that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke is writing this letter to Theophilus, whoever that may be. We don't get a real clear understanding of who that is, but this letter is for Theophilus, that he may have certainty. Right? So, so Luke is saying, I have done my homework. Um, I, have, I have walked with the people, I have talked with the people to get the, to compile this information for you so that you may, again, just like John, that you may believe and that you may have a certainty, a certainty about what you believe. And so that's where, the, that's where the purpose is of Luke. And so we want to take that, remember that as we read through Luke, we want to remember that there's there's a purpose behind it. It's not just uh, it's not necessarily all going to be prescriptive, meaning it's not going to all be like this is what you need to do. A lot of it is going to be this is what Jesus did. It's to focus on what Jesus did and focus on the, that as a background for then what would we do, okay? And so um, we want to look at that. We want to remember that. Um, especially when we're first reading the Bible, learning to read the Bible, there are passages in the Bible that if we take as literally saying that this person is saying that we should do this, then it can be very dangerous. Right? If we look at the Old Testament and we see some of the stories there about um, you know, men having several wives and things like that, and, and we read through and say, man, he doesn't, the author isn't condemning that. He's making it sound like it's a good thing. Well, that's because it's just a narrative. It's a story. So implied in the, by the author is that you should know this is a bad thing. But it's not the role of the author to point that out. Does that make sense? So it's like a book. 
where you can read a book and you say, oh man, you know, you know what's coming, or you know, oh no, they, they shouldn't be doing that. But the role of the author is not to say, don't do this. The role of the author is to paint the picture of what is happening. Okay? So we need to remember that when we go to God's word, to have that, that the term would be biblical literacy, that we would understand the Bible in that context to say, okay, who is, who is, the, who is the author, who is the, the audience, and what's implied in that. And so um, that's just my encouragement to you, especially those of you who are just starting to study the Bible. Just there's a, You can either have a study Bible or, or you can get blueletterbible.com is a, is a website that I, uh, that I use a lot. Um, and you can get the kind of that that understanding of all right, who's the author? Who's this going to? You can you can get that, and that's very helpful for study. So, so we're here in Luke, and this is this broad narrative that he has that not specifically like John. John was John was John's purpose, and if you read through the book of John, you'll see is very crystal centric, very Christ centered, right? To prove to prove Christ, to 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 reinforce who Christ was. And Luke's narrative is a bit broader than that. It's, it's, it's more about um, the Christianity as a whole. So the kind of whole picture of it, the practice, uh, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, all of it. So we'll get there. Um, but there are two takeaways that I want to have from this. First of all, we want to see what point the author is making. Okay? So we want to look at the evidence. And I, I think that's what we're going to be spending our time today mostly doing looking at the evidence. And then second, having seen the evidence, then we can ask, okay, what is the application then? Now that I've gotten what the evidence from, from the, the author and what he's telling me and what he's showing me, now taking that, what do I do with it? So what is the evidence? What is the point that's being made? Okay, so we saw, we saw a big picture. We saw Luke's, Luke's big picture of this book is for you, Theophilus, to understand with certainty all the things, all the things that you've heard about this. Okay? So that's a big picture. Now, let's look at a little, little picture. Zoom in a little bit. Right before this passage in Luke 4, if you, if you have your Bibles and you have them open, you'll see right before this passage is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Okay, the genealogy. And what's the genealogy? It's basically like a family tree. Right, so um, it's it's it goes back all the way goes back to Adam, um, but it's listing names, and those are always fun to read through when you're when you're reading through and try to pronounce all those names. But uh, you're reading reading through the names, and it's showing what it's doing is it's showing that Jesus is human. Okay, and that seems very simple, like a very simple thing, but it's part of this evidence for the case that Luke is trying to make here. That Jesus is descended from man. Now, there's some clues in there that it's uh, to, some caveats to that. But that he's part of the line from Adam. Alright, so you and I have a genealogy. Every one of us has a genealogy. We may not know it. We may not know uh, you know, we may not know our, our birth parents. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a genealogy that goes back, right? We all have it. And so that is something that all humans have. And so we're saying, this is the genealogy of Christ. Remember, he's human, okay? So they're starting there. Now, there's, there's more to the story, so don't, don't just sit on and take the one thing today that you take is, oh, Jesus is only human. Don't take that. We're going to get there. We're going to go further. 
But the point had to be made that he is human. That he is at least human. Okay, and so that's what the genealogy is there for. But not only that, if you were an Old Testament, uh, if you knew the Old Testament, and certainly Theophilus here did, at least to some extent, there's also prophecies fulfilled in Christ that must be proven by a genealogy. Right, that he's the son of David. Okay, so that he's descended from David. That he's in David's line. Okay, that's important. Because that's who we are told the Messiah would come from. All right, so, so not just is he proving that Jesus is a human, but he's also proving that he's the right human. A human from the right line. Of the right people. So genealogies are, these, are a big deal. There's several of them throughout Scripture, several times that we see genealogies. And it is a big deal because we see the consistency of the promise of God in the genealogies. So here we're reminded that Jesus is part of this line, part of this fulfillment of prophecy of David's line, and even further back of Abraham's line, the Abrahamic covenant that, that God made with Abraham, that all nations would be blessed through your line. Okay, so, so another evidence for us that Jesus, not only is he David's, from David's line, but he's also from Abraham's line, which is all the same. Okay, and so just, just more and more evidences for who Christ is. So why does it matter that Jesus was human? Why does it matter that Jesus was human? And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I, I grew up in the church, and I, I never don't think I ever really wrestled with, uh, yeah, okay, I, I, I was always told at a young age, yeah, Jesus is fully man, fully, fully God. Okay, I get that, so I never wrestled with it a little bit. But why does it matter that Jesus was a human? I think in one sense it matters because what we're reading about here in his temptation, we can distance ourselves from it if we only think as Jesus, of Jesus as God. We can look at the temptation and say, well, yeah, of course, of course he, he passed the test. I mean, he's God. You know, that, that makes sense. Right? But when we step back and we, and we say, and we look at just the chapter right before and say, wait a minute, this is, this is human. God has a humanity here. Then we can say, okay, well, as a human... 40 days without food. The understatement, maybe in all of scripture, he was hungry, right? Yeah, 40 days without food, yeah, it's going to happen. You're going to be hungry because he's human, right? And so we can associate with that. We can understand, yeah, God as human, yeah, I, 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 I would not be able to pass the test. If I were able to, to make stone into a bread, I, I probably, my inclination, I'm probably going to do that and more, right? It's, there's going to be a buffet there after the three days, right? It's not just going to be a, a piece of bread. So, so we understand that the humanity there of, of the, the temptation of Christ. And so we, we, want, to, we want to acknowledge that, 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 yes, he's God, but he's 100% human as well. And so this temptation can, can resonate with our temptations. So this hunger, this... this uh, Deprived state, depraved state. Can you can you imagine? I mean, forty days without food. You know, it's going to start to look. Um, you know, if you, you guys remember, I I don't even know if she's still on. I used to watch Survivor. 
right? And they, they were out there, and they were just eating, like, rice or whatever, you know? But they were still eating something. But, like, day one, and then, like, the last day when the competition ends, I mean, just a shadow of themselves, right? Because they're not eating much, and they're doing all this stuff. So, but can you imagine 40 days without food, what you're going to look like, right? So there's a, there's, a, there's a familiarity that we can have with that in the human aspect. But also, the temptation of Christ was more appalling to Christ because of his divinity. Now, let me explain this. We, you and I, we sin. We have sin. So temptation for us is heavy, but we have a familiarity with, with the sin. And so when we're tempted to sin, I mean, yeah, we want to fight that temptation, and, and there's, a, there's part of us that wants to fight against that, but there's also that part of us, that sin nature of us, that says, okay, no, this is familiar. This sin is familiar to me. And so Christ didn't have that. And so we can say, as part of this, of, of the temptation of Christ not really being as effective as it would be for us, we can stop, we can step back and say, well, you know what? He's the Son of God, so it's not really a big deal that he's being tempted. He knows the promises. He can, he can hold on to the promises and, and, and just, just stand firm in it. But, but if you think of it like this, how how ugly does sin look to you and I that experience sin? How much more ugly does it look to a holy God? Right? So the temptation of Christ is not something that we should downgrade and say, you know what, yeah, he's, he's got it. I, 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 knew that, I knew how it was going to end before we even started. No, we want to step into it and say, wait a minute, he's a human at the end of, you know, not of life, but at the end of, of his, himself, completely at the end of himself. And he's a holy God who, who hates sin and who hates evil. And he's being confronted, being confronted in his humanity with that evil. And it's a hard place for us to understand. And there's a lot of thinking going on. I, I understand that. But it's this, it's this great assault on Christ. But he doesn't answer like, come on, you already knew what was going on. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of I get the sense when I read through it, like, I think the answer should be, really, Satan? I mean, you know how this is going to end. Are we really going to go through this? Right? But he doesn't answer that way. He doesn't answer with, why are you even trying? He answers as a man. Okay? So, what do I got? Which ones I got up here? Look at, look at his first response to, Jesus, to Satan's first temptation. If you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, who shall not live by bread alone? Man, Man he's associating himself with, the, with his humanity. Right? He's not saying, oh, God doesn't need bread. Right? That's not his answer. He's answering as the man Jesus. Okay? And so we, we see that in, in this throughout. That he's answering these as a man. He's being tempted as a man in his humanity. But in his humanity, he is without sin. Okay? In his humanity, he's without sin. So Adam was a man, and Adam is at the beginning of the, of the tree, of his family tree. But he sinned. And Christ shows us here that 
his temptation, although very real, didn't have power over him. But because it was real, because the temptation of Christ is real, we get passages like this in, in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who, was, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay? Has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So part of what I'm doing, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I know I'm just rehashing the same thing over and over again, but part of what I'm doing here is to, is to remind you and to imbue, okay? That we have Jesus Christ, our high priest, who knows, who knows the struggle, who knows the temptation. Because his humanity was real, his temptation was real, and so is his association with us. That is real. His compassion for us. That is real. His understanding of our weaknesses. That is real. His patience with us. All these things are founded on, on the, stand on the foundation of him knowing us. Not him standing far off from uh, the, you know, the realm of heaven looking down like so many, uh, so many things portray it. Right? This is him coming. This is, uh, I heard an analogy this week, uh, a guy named Wilcox said, this is humans in a pit, right? We are in a pit. And no matter how much we, can, we try and struggle to get out of this pit, we can't do it. <clears throat> and this is not a picture of God standing at the top of the pit saying, hey, you know, come out this way or go out this way. This is a picture of Christ jumping into this pit, becoming human. The word became flesh, becoming human and then living with us in this pit, and then if we just cling to him, if we just trust in him, and, and he will deliver us out of the pit, okay? So there's a, there, there's a different picture there. I, so many times I feel like we, we can see God as this, this big, and I, and I know that, I know that uh, there's some truth to this, but we can see him only as this God out there. And stories like this remind us that that God out there came in here. And he came into our mess. He came into our temptation. He experienced that temptation as well. And then because of that, the next verse in Hebrews, just after that, that one uh, said that he's, that he's tempted but without sin, the next verse says, so therefore let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Okay? Because he has done that, and this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. When we understand this, when we understand what Christ has done for us, and that he has done this in his humanity, when we understand that, that he was tempted in every way as we were and yet without sin, then we can confidently draw near to the throne of grace. Because we understand that he does sympathize with our weaknesses, and that's what he came for. Christ has been tempted with, and he overcame all that we have been tempted with. So there's the mercy, his mercy to help us in our time of need. The love of God is a knowing love. Okay, Think about that this week. The love of God is a knowing love. He knows 
Right? There's, there's a story in the Old Testament where God is given the name El Roi, the God who sees. And he just doesn't see from afar. He's near. And he sees and he, and he acts and he does. And he, he's, he's near to those who, who trust in him. Why else does it matter that Jesus is human? Hebrews 2. Hebrews is much of the same, uh, much of the same goal that Luke and John do. It's a letter written to the Jews, and it's probably the clearest picture of, of how Old Testament truth points to Christ. Okay? So, so Hebrews is taking Old Testament uh, culture, Old Testament the law, and just pointing it all to Christ. Time and time again. In Hebrews 2, we see that. Jesus was made, I didn't put these up here, made a little while, for a little while he was made lower than the angels, which means human. And he was glorified then by suffering and death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Okay? He is the human, Christ is the human, listen to this, the beauty of this, he is the human that is tasting death for mankind. Okay? Christ is the human that tastes death for mankind. Then we see this beautiful picture of Jesus calling us brothers, okay, which means that he shares in our humanity. Not that, not that, uh, not that we're buddies like you know, chaps, but that, that he shares in our humanity with us. That's why he's given us the name of brothers. Okay, so this is where we start in verses 14 through 18, which I have up here. I put this in the NLT to make it a little bit more readable. So, so listen closely. Listen to what's being said because of, of, of Christ. So it says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil, who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves the fear of dying. That's how, that's how you and I are portrayed. Okay? That's how you and I are portrayed. As living our lives with the fear of dying. And how true is that? Right? I mean, all you got to do is open up one magazine out there and see all these things are just telling me how I can live a longer life, how I can avoid thinking of death, how I can, how I can stay away from death. That is, that is who you and I are. We live with the fear of dying. And if you don't believe me, just take a look at all the safety features that are on your car on your way home, right? The main goal of the human mind is to, I don't want to die. And why don't you want to die? It's because you know that you're far from God. Let's go. So only in this way could he be set free, all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham, okay? So that is people. He came to help people. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Okay? Is there hope in that? Is there hope in that? Because of who he is, then he is able. Okay? We always want to look at those the, he is able statements in Scripture. And this is one that we can, we can bank on. And I know that we can do it this week that we can stand on. Because I know that we're going to have testing at some point this week. 
I know that we're going to have trials at some point this week. I know that there's going to be an amount of suffering this week. And he says that since he has gone through that himself, he's able. He's able to help us. So Christ, what is happening there? Let's recap this. So Christ must have been human in order to redeem humankind. Does that make sense? Christ must have been human in order to redeem humankind. Only a human could break Satan's and sin's hold. Only a human. So legal language helps, helps me here, helps me understand this here. Imagine that a judge hangs, hands down a sentence. Okay? A judge hands down a sentence, and this is the fine you have to pay. Can someone else just step in and say, okay, I'm going to cancel their fine? Someone else just do that, some outsider? No, absolutely not, right? They can, what they can do, we'll get to that, what they can do. But if the judge is given the sentence, and if he, is, if he has said this is the fine to the defendant, right? That's the person who's, who's right? Yeah. That's the person who's, who's putting the, getting the fine put on them. If he says you have to pay this fine, the fine has to be paid. Right? What if instead, though, instead of some guy just saying, hey, it, his fine's canceled, instead of just saying that, what if he steps into the defendant's place? And he said, you know what? I know, Judge, that you can't cancel this fine. So instead of canceling it, I'm going to have you put the burden of it on me instead. And I'm going to become the defendant. And then I'm going to pay the fine for this person. You see the difference there? It might be subtle, but there's the difference there. This is not someone on the outside just saying, hey, you got to cancel this fine. It's saying, no, I understand that the debt needs to be paid. So I'm going to step into the place and I'm going to pay the fine. That's what's happening here. The defendant's price, the fee has to, the fine has to be paid. The biblical language here is Jesus as mediator. Jesus as mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. What makes an effective mediator? We know that term, right? Mediator. What makes an effective mediator? He has to have a vested interest in both sides, right? Uh, he has to say, I want what's best for you both. right? Otherwise, that's not a mediator. That's a ringer or uh, something else. I don't, I, can't, I don't know what that term is, but that's, that's me saying, uh, hey, you're going to go get everything I want out of this, right? And that's not what a mediator is. A mediator comes and it stands between two parties and he says, I'm, I've got the best in mind for both of you, and so we need to figure out how that's going to work, okay? And so that's, what, that's, what, that's the name given to Christ. He is the mediator. He knows the intricacies of both sides. He knows uh, what each side needs, and he's working for the best of both of those sides. So Christ's humanity is, is essential to his role as redeemer for the people. Here's another picture. If there's a football game, you're playing a football game, and you're losing badly, like it's 70 to nothing, all right? And you're losing just so badly. There has to be someone on your team that scores eventually, doesn't there? Well. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. If let me start back. If you're going to win, eventually somebody from your team has to score, right? 
I know there's a lot of variations. Well, maybe they cheated and it gets count. You know, okay. Let's get let's get all that. If you're not helping my analogy, I guess I'm not helping my analogy. <laughs> but if you got a game and you're down 70 to nothing, there's gonna be a point where your team is gonna have to score if you want to win. Nobody can just step in and say, okay, the losing team wins, right? <laughs> Doesn't even make sense. There has to be a point where, yeah, where your side scores. Okay? That probably didn't clear anything out there. But that's this picture where, where if, I, if I am lost in sin, if I'm dead in sins, as scripture says that I am, if I'm dead in sin as a human, as a humankind, then there has to be someone from my team, humankind, that steps in and scores some points. Right? That steps in and wins the victory for me. It has to be done by one of my team. And so Christ steps into humanity. He steps into flesh. And he does that for us. Christ is not a high priest that doesn't understand us. He is a high priest who not only understands our temptations, but he has offered up the one sacrifice that is needed to cover our sins. And that's himself. One more, one more reason that Jesus being a human matters. Matters because of what happens here in this passage. Back in Luke. It matters because of what happens here. What you have here is a human completely resisting the temptation of the tempter. Okay? Satan from the beginning has been a, a liar and a deceiver and a tempter. That's what he does. So now we've looked at at, at Christ as human, human, right? We've seen that he's human and that he needs to be human. But in this passage, we also see the effectiveness of his humanity. It's not a wasted humanity. It's a, an effective human, humanity. This Jesus being fully man, what does he do here? He says no to sin. He says no to sin. This is something that we humans could not even do for two chapters in Scripture. Adam and Eve are created in chapter 1 of Genesis. By Genesis 3, the world is broken and sin has come into the world. Right? Two chapters. And so that's why Christ is given the name the better Adam. He's given the name the better Adam. Because he is a man that could say no to sin. And did. <laughs> Right here, he said no to sin. And the pride in you and me goes, well, you know, if I were Adam, I wouldn't have blown it that early. Or that early. <laughs> and let me tell you, you would have. You would have. Right? Because Christ is the only one that, that, could, that would have been able to, and did, resist the temptation. Couldn't even do it for two chapters. So here we see Jesus... Key term at the beginning, key phrase, full of the Spirit. And he's speaking the truth of God into the temptation to overcome. We'll get more into that next week. We're really surface level this week of, of kind of background of how we see the text. But I want to see you, I want to see this week, I want to see Christ as he is. I don't want to move too quickly, because we can tend to do this. I don't want to move too quickly to the, okay, so what does it mean for me, or how do I, or how do, I do this, or what do I do about this? There is a big, what does it mean for me? And it means for me and for you that we can't do it and Christ has done it, right? So we want to sit here this week and we want to see Christ and we want to honor Christ 
Yes, as God, and we will get there, but also as the man that sent from God that was able to resist the temptation. Because if we remember, the purpose of this book from Luke 1 is we're not meant to see this and say, first off, okay, so how am I, this is how I do it, right? What we're meant to do is sit back and say, that is what Christ has done, and that is how he did it. And that is how we organize. And that's why when I say I place my faith in Christ, I'm saying that I place my faith in the sinless Son of God. Because this is how he denied sin. So we want, to, we want to see that picture of Christ first. We want to glory in that. We want to glory in what he has done for us. And then we can step back and say, okay, now in light of what he has done for us, now what do I do? What is my role? What do I do with it? So next week we'll get into that. We'll get into the response, the means for my response, and, and how I respond to sin in my own life, the temptation in my own life. But I want you to know that we won't have next week without this week, right? Any hope that we have of saying no to sin next week when we talk about that, any hope that we have, you and I, you and I, humans, individuals, any hope that you and I have of saying no to sin starts here with Christ saying no to sin. It has to start here. Because if Christ can't say no to sin, you and I sure are not going to be able to. Right? So this is Christ showing us that he is able. So what Jesus does here is he proves who he is. He proves who he is. He is the promised Messiah. He is the sinless one. He is this lamb without spot or blemish that was an acceptable offering, an acceptable sacrifice to God on our behalf. Remember we talked about that last week. You and I, in the eyes of God, are unacceptable. We are unacceptable because of our sin. And so this is Christ showing, and this is the, the author of Luke showing that Christ is the acceptable one because he did not sin. And then what, is, what does Christ do? We, we read in the Hebrews 7.25 that he is interceding. Therefore, he is able to save completely all those who come to him because he always intercedes for us. So the sinless one is now interceding for us. You see, what you believe about Jesus is the stand where you stand or fall when it comes to Christianity. What you believe about Jesus is, is the most central part. Who is he? What has he done? And small, very small tweakings and variations of who Christ is leads to some very, very dangerous conclusions that can quickly go outside of what the Bible teaches. And the world doesn't know what to think about Christ either. Right? There's the, the, the question of what do you do with Christ is the most central. There's a, uh, there's a quote here, and maybe some of you have heard it. I have a quote here from uh, C.S. Lewis. And I love it because it just gets to the point of, of this. Uh, so what are some things that, that you've heard maybe uh, about folks, uh, how they view Christ? Right? Some say, he's a, well, he was a good teacher, right? or he was a prophet. Um, Islam would say that as well, um, that he's a prophet. Um, what about, uh, you know, that he was, well, he has good teachings, you know, that it, that it was somebody we can, we can follow, uh, you know, his teachings. 
Well, listen to what uh, C.S. Lewis says. And again, I'm sure probably some of you have heard this quote. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And that's this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Okay, so that's what we hear a lot. Okay, yeah, he's a good teacher, whatever. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, right? If we really are looking at the teachings of Christ, who he says he is, either he's a liar and crazy, or he is who he says he is. And that's the choice. That's where we find ourselves. We can look at this story in Luke and say, either it's true and he resisted temptation, or it's not, and he chose sin. And we have no hope in it. It's one or the other. Either he is who the word says he is, or he isn't. And so we look at the humanity of Christ today, but we do it in view of his deity as well. In view of his 100% God as well. We have to have that. Jesus is not your homeboy, all right? You heard that, you heard that phrase, Jesus is my homeboy, okay? Jesus is not your homeboy, okay? He is a man, yes. He is a man, yes. And he is God. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, many other religions take this claim of Jesus' humanity and they magnify it. And I want to make sure that you understand that's not what I'm doing today. I'm not saying that he was more man and maybe a little bit God. Scripture says that he is 100% man, 100% God. But these other religions will take this and they, and they magnify it so much about the humanity of God that they end up making him not God at all. And so Christians, we tend to, to push back against that. We want to say, whoa, 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 God is, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And yes, he is very much. But we forget about, he's also 100% man. And there's an importance to that. He had to be man to redeem us. He had to be God to reconcile us. And in Jesus, we have both man and God. He was God from eternity past. He was man, like we read earlier in Hebrews, for a little while. So that he could reconcile us to God. Kind of he, uh, he came, he saw, he conquered. Right, Gabe? That was your line from your thing last week. He came, he saw, he conquered. Actually, it's a little, it's a little different. God saw first, and he came, and he conquered. Conquered sin and death. Right? That's, that's what Christ did on our behalf. 
Jesus isn't your homeboy, but he knows your temptations. He knows the appeal of sin to the human. He gets it. He gets the trap that sin can be. He can sympathize with your weakness. And in the temptation of Christ, here in Luke 4, we see that he refused to buy into the empty promises of sin. And that's our jumping point for next week. Okay? So when we talk, when we come together next week, we want to start there. We want to start where this is a picture of Christ's victory over sin. Humankind victory over sin through Christ. And that's where we're going to start. And then we can learn from there about how you and I, what, what, what value do we get from this? What, what does this mean for us in a practical application of things? What does this mean for, for you and I, for our sin, for our temptation? What does it mean? But we start with Christ. Always, always start with Christ. Let's pray.